Hello, greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and thank you for joining us today and giving us the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Jesus and in Scripture. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles, and we want to be of service to you. Please, if you have any comments or questions about anything that we're talking about, reach out to us in the comments, subscribe to us where you found us, and if we can be of any spiritual service to you, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and on Twitter. We read regarding the words of the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz of Judah in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 10. Yahweh again spoke to Ahaz. Ask for a confirming sign from Yahweh your God. You can even ask for something miraculous. But Ahaz responded, I don't want to ask. I don't want to put Yahweh to a test. So Isaiah replied, Pay attention, family of David. Do you consider it too insignificant to try the patience of men? Is that why you also are trying my patience of my God? For this reason, the Lord himself will give you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. He will eat sour milk and honey, which will help him know how to reject evil and choose what is right. Here is why this will be so. Before the child knows how to reject evil and choose what is right, the land whose two kings you fear will be desolate. Yahweh will bring on you, your people, and your father's family, a time unlike any since Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. At that time, Yahweh will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. All of them will come and make their home in the ravines between the cliffs and in the crevices of the cliffs, in all the thorn bushes and in all the watering holes. At that time, the Lord will use a razor hired from the banks of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the hair off the head and private parts. It will also shave off the beard. At that time, a man will keep alive a young cow from the herd and a couple of goats. From the abundance of milk they produce, he will have sour milk for his meals. Indeed, everyone left in the heart of the land will eat sour milk and honey. At that time, every place where there had been a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels will be overrun with thorns and briars. With bow and arrow, people will hunt there, for the whole land will be covered with thorns and briars. They will stay away from all the hills that were cultivated for fear of the thorns and briars. Cattle will graze there, and sheep will trample on them. This message comes to Ahaz uh, in the time of what we call the Syro-Ephraimite War, which took place around 736 to 732, and it's set up at the beginning of chapter 7, that while Ahaz was reigning, uh, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of uh, Israel marched up to Jerusalem to do battle, but they were unable to prevail against it. Now what had happened, and why there's this battle going on, is that in the year 742, so a few years before this, Tiglath-Pileser III became king of Assyria. And the Assyrians had been weak and stagnant for about 40 years before then, and that 40-year period had been kind of a golden age for uh, Israel in particular, and the Arameans. Uh, sometimes they're called the Syrians. We're going to call them the Arameans. That's their more ethnic name at the time, and also to reduce the confusion between Syria and Assyria. 
And uh, the Assyrians at this time had been in one of their phases. The Assyrian history is a time where you have a strong king, and then after a strong king, normally there's a period of instability, civil war, weakness, and then there'll be another strong king arise. And so they had been in this cycle, and Tiglath-Pileser would not only be a strong king, but he would now begin developing a kind of empire that Mesopotamia had never seen before. But the uh, Aramean king Rezin and the Israelite king Pekah are seeing this unwelcome development in Assyria, and so they have developed an alliance to protect one another uh, from Assyrian aggression. They want Judah to join that as well, but Ahaz did not want to join it. And therefore, to coerce Judah into joining it, Rezin and Pekah were fighting against Ahaz. They had pinned him in Jerusalem. They had hoped as uh, had been uh, established in chapter 7, that they would be able to depose Ahaz and to put a king more amenable to their uh, machinations in place there in Judah to be allied with them against this threat from the Assyrians. However, Jerusalem is a very strong, very hard to conquer fortified city, and the Arameans and Israelites, even their combined strength, were not able to do that. And because uh, it's the... Uh, Syrians and the Ephraimites. Uh, that's why it's known as the Syro-Ephraimite War uh, with them, uh, against them. We should remind ourselves, it's very important that you know we think highly of Judah being the land of King David, but Judah was its own kingdom, but always had much fewer resources and less strength than Israel did or the Arameans did. And so they're very much always the junior nation. They're always very much weaker than the nations around it. And uh, we see in verse 2 that the uh, people and the house of David were emotionally shaken as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were very scared of what the Arameans and Israelites especially combined could do to them. And so what would Ahaz do? Ahaz wanted, and this is the backdrop to this entire conversation between uh, Israel, Isaiah and Ahaz. Ahaz plans and intends on taking the resources he has from the temple and to become a vassal of Tiglath-Pileser. Basically, he's going to pay Tiglath-Pileser to deal with the Arameans and the Israelites. Isaiah is what we call a court prophet. A court prophet is one who would speak directly with the rulers of Judah and that the king of Judah would consult with. And so that's why Yahweh sends him with his son, Shi'ar Yashub. A remnant will return is his name, which is probably a hope for the future, um, or the hope that if there is this enemy that's invaded here, the Arameans and the Israelites, that are only a remnant of them is going to return. They're not going to be successful in what they're trying to do. And they're supposed to meet Ahaz at this particular place. Uh, which is known as the uh, field of the washer, the fuller's field, where people wash their uh, clothes. And you have certain women probably there washing clothes in Isaiah 7 and verse 3. In verses 4 through 9, you have this first message, which is of encouragement, that Ahaz should not be afraid of Rezin and Pekah, that within 65 years those kingdoms would be gone, that Ahaz was to do absolutely nothing, and that he should let the events play out the way they were going to play out. Um, now, Ahaz is making a decision here that's going to have extremely important long-term effects. In fact, you, we're going to see that what Ahaz decides here is going to start a ball rolling that's going to get us all the way to the exile that's going to take place, uh, even though that exile is going to take um, over 150 or so years a after um, Ahaz would be dead. 
So we begin in verses 10 through 17 with the Emmanuel sign itself. And specifically, we get verse 10 and 11, where Yahweh invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. Now, it is a sign. A sign is a demonstration or an event that would confirm a word that a prophet has spoken in the name of Yahweh. So a sign would be, okay, ask for something, it would happen. Now, Hezekiah will later ask for a sign that he is going to be healed, and the sun's shadow went backward. Uh, so showing that, you know, God has going to do what he's going to, says he's going to do. Uh, something miraculous in the NET is literally make it as deep as Sheol or make it high upwards, you know, whatever, wherever you want to see it, something that you cannot say, oh, well, that was just a natural happenstance. Now, Ahaz would seem to be pious here. Well, I don't want to ask, I don't want to put Yahweh to a test, but notice how um, he's not wanting to challenge or provoke Yahweh, but Isaiah sees this as, and this is a false display of piety, and that's why Isaiah will rebuke him. Uh, do you consider it so insignificant that you would p try men's patience that you're going to try the patience of God also? And it's noticeable that I did, Isaiah doesn't say it's just to Ahaz. He says it's the house of David. And again, Ahaz is the you know, member of the house of David in front of Isaiah. But he's not just talking to him. He's also talking to all the others that are come after him. And almost all the verbs in 14 and 15 are going to be uh, to the whole house, not just to Ahaz. And therefore, we have this confirming sign that God is going to give anyway. Even though Ahaz won't see one, God is giving a sign. And what the sign is, is not the child himself. Um, the, the sign is not the Emmanuel child. It's possible that the text is generic, that a young woman will conceive and bear a child. But it is spe perhaps specific the way the NET is putting it out here. We can imagine here that there's this uh, one of the women here washing clothes at the Fuller's Field. Uh, he says, this woman here is going to conceive and, and, and she'll bear a son. And, and she should call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Uh, now, there's a lot going on here. This word young woman. In Hebrew, it's Alma. And it can refer to a virgin woman. That's the way it's used in Genesis 24 and 43. But it's generically uh, the term for a young woman. And uh, in the Greek Septuagint, it's rendered as Parthenos. And Parthenos does mean virgin. So in, again, we, we haven't even gotten to the sign itself yet. That a woman is going to conceive and give birth to the son whom she should name Emmanuel. That he would reach an age where he would eat milk and honey to know how to reject evil and choose good. Now, this could be a time marker of, okay, this is the age this child's going to be at, or the way the NET is looking at it, uh, the, and the fact that the prophecy later on is going to be a little bit more malevolent for Judah. It could be about the bitterness of sour milk and honey as a diet that's going to compel the boy to know to choose good and reject evil, that uh, there's been an object lesson why you shouldn't follow in the ways of the disobedient. Regardless, before the child would reach the age to know that good and evil, those two kings would be gone. And that's the sign for Ahaz. That is what, in context, in the 8th century here, that is what the point of that sign is, is that the sign is showing Ahaz that within this time period, these events are going to happen, and these two kings that you're afraid of aren't going to be there anymore. Now, verse 17 is a hinge message that uh, kind of is the conclusion to the sign and gets into the kind of a little bit of extrapolation that comes after it. That, yes, the Emmanuel child is the way and the short time that Aram and Israel is going to have. 
Uh, but if Ahaz keeps going the way he's going, that God is going to send against his father's house a fearsome enemy, an enemy they haven't seen since it's been an independent kingdom, and that's the king of Assyria. And verses 18 through 25 now are going to kind of extrapolate and expand upon that and what that's going to look like. We begin in verse 18 with the flies and the bees. Flies are very irritating creatures and bees sting. And that's how Isaiah envisions that Judah is going to be set between these two forces of control. That Egypt's going to want to control Judah policy to keep it as a buffer state between them and Assyria. And of course Assyria is going to try to dominate Judah in order to put pressure on Egypt. And thus Assyria is going to be the razor of God. If you shave hair off the head and the beard, it's shameful. And to have one's private shaved would be humiliating. Uh, private parts here in NET is in a good translation of feet, because that's what it says in Hebrew, but feet is often used idiomatically to refer to the genital area. And this is very likely a prophecy of the devastation that's going to come upon Judah in the year 701 with Sennacherib. Uh, milk and honey, it's an interesting parallel here, because milk and honey generally is, a, you know, hey, the land of Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey. That's why God gave it to them, right? Um, but... The content is otherwise negative, and that's why the NET here makes good sense of it, is sour milk and honey. Because what's left in the land when the crops have been ravaged and the cattle have all been driven off or slain? Well, what's left is you still got a little bit of sour milk, old milk from maybe some of the creatures that still are around, or that you saved before the creatures were all killed, and uh, some honey, because uh, normally they don't go after the bees. It's supposed to be seen as a starvation economy. And therefore, what had been a prosperous land is now reduced to a wasteland uh, where there's thorns and briars, and that what had been fertile agricultural areas would become hunting grounds that would only be fit for grazing. Um, a significant ecological transformation. And so in this way, the Emmanuel sign given to Ahaz is a promise and a warning that a woman would indeed conceive and give birth to a son, that before he would know to choose evil and refuse good, Aram and Israel would be destroyed. But if Ahaz persevered in his ways, he would bring utter disaster upon his people. Now, when Isaiah is saying this, Ahaz has no intention to listen to him. He has already made his plan according to 2 Kings 16. He has made his going to make his alliance at Tiglath-Pileser. He becomes a vassal. He even copies the design of an Assyrian altar to bring back and build in Jerusalem. And the Emmanuel sign was then fulfilled in its context. Because from 734 to 732, Tiglath-Pileser III attacked the Aramaeans in Israel. And at that time, Aram was eliminated as a going concern. And Israel was reduced to the land of Ephraim in 2 Kings 15 and 16. So Emmanuel, the child, would have been around four or five years old by that point, fulfilling the sign. Uh, in 722-721, Sargon II and then Shalmaneser V, kings of Assyria, attacked Ephraim, successfully besieged Samaria, eliminating Israel as a going concern in 2 Kings 17. Uh, and Emmanuel would not even be a full adult yet by this point. And at this point now, the pressure has increased on Judah because it is now the last part of Egypt's Canaanite buffer against Assyria. And, there, and when encouraged by the Chaldean Babylonian Merodach-Baladan and the Cushite Egyptian pharaoh, uh, Ahaz's son Hezekiah is going to rebel against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And there's going to be devastating results that the Assyrians ravaged Judah, uh, destroyed the major walled cities in the lands except for Jerusalem itself, that yes, it was miraculously delivered according to 2 Kings 18 and 19 and Isaiah 36 and 37. 
but where we focus on, hey, look how God has miraculously preserved his town and his people, and that is certainly a cause of great power and rejoicing. Um, Isaiah was not wrong on Isaiah 1 and verse 3, saying that uh, the land had been devastated and that all that was left was a basically like a hut in a cucumber field, and that unless God had had a little bit of mercy, uh, Judah would have been entirely wiped out. And we can really see the fulfillment of that Emmanuel sign in its fullness uh, in the context fulfilled at that point, because now the land is devastated and ravaged. And if Judah ever fully recovered from what happened in 701, it would have been in the days of Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, uh, pretty much a full century later. And Josiah would die foolishly, trying to keep up upholding his obligations in that alliance he had with the Babylonians against Pharaoh Necho. Uh, the second, who was trying to prop up what was left of the Rumpusirian state in 609, uh, which can be seen in 2 Kings 23. And for the next 23 years, Judah would again find itself under this great pressure. They're nominally still allied with the Chaldeans, uh, but they're also being claimed by the Egyptians. Uh, Zedekiah would trust in Egyptian promises, and he would rebel against uh, Nebuchadnezzar again in 588, and that would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the Davidic monarchy on earth in 586, as can be seen in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And we go through that entire narrative to say that Emmanuel, God has been with Judah the whole time. Because God had made provision to eliminate Aram and Israel as he had promised, that he visited upon Judah the punishment for Ahaz and his faithlessness as he has promised, that, oh sure, God was with Judah, but Judah kept entangling itself in foreign policy machinations, and they received the ultimate punishment for not trusting in Yahweh because of Ahaz's very critical decision that he has made. Uh, that he was going the foreign policy route, he was not putting his trust in God route, and because they had put their trust in foreign policy and not in God, that led to their ultimate devastation and final doom. And now, for the better part of the next 600 years, the Jewish people had good reason to wonder if Yahweh was even still with them. Because the exile was a time of great crisis. But God did deliver his people, and they did return to the land of Israel, and they did rebuild the temple in the days of Daniel and Ezra. But Israel remained under the power of pagan oppressive forces, first the Persians, then the Ptolemaic and Seleucid Macedonians, and then again the Romans. The Shekinah, the cloud of presence that was the physical manifestation of Yahweh's presence among his people in the first temple, never descended on the most holy place in the second temple. When the Roman general Pompey uh, busted in, uh, to the holy, most holy place, he saw nothing. There was nothing there. It was an empty room. But then God would come to his people and dwell with them in a way that was completely unexpected, even unimaginable. Because around the year 5 BC, a peasant girl in Galilee was visited by the angel Gabriel. She was a virgin and became pregnant through the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now her husband Joseph was going to divorce her quietly. But the angel appeared to him and reassured him that the child was of the Holy Spirit, that he was to name the child Jesus, that he would save the people from their sins in Matthew 1, 19-21. And then Matthew explains that this is a fulfillment of what had been prophesied in Isaiah seven fourteen, that a virgin would give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, who is God with us. And thus Jesus is literally God with us, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man in John 1, 1 in verses 1 14 and Colossians 2 verses 8 and 9. But how is Jesus fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah? 
And there are a lot of people who have taken that as a very deeply serious issue and try to figure out how Jesus fulfilled every detailed aspect of Isaiah 7, 14 through 17, even following, and straining credulity and application, trying to see the wise men and the Assyrians and things of that nature. On the other side of the extreme, you have Matthew people thinking Matthew's just proof texting. That, well, hey, look, here's something from the Old Testament. We're just going to slap that onto Jesus and trying to fit, force it to fit who Jesus is and what he's about. But there's a, a very effective middle way to understand how Jesus is fulfilling what's going on here. Because Israel, in the first century, or at the time of the change from the first centuries BC to, to our common era, is in a very similar situation to that 8th century. The Second Temple Jewish Israel, like Ahaz of Judah, was very afraid of an oppressive power. They were looking for a deliverer from their distress. And God was giving them a sign. But it's not a sign they really asked for or wanted. The former sign had been the duration that the child would be born and would live to a certain point, and those two kings would be gone by then. But the latter time, with Jesus, the child himself is the sign, that he is the Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in 736 BC, what was going to be the hardest thing for Ahaz to do is what Isaiah asked him to do, to do nothing. To see this, what everybody assumed was existential threat to his rule and to the house of David in the form of this Aramean-Israelite alliance. And to have done nothing in front of it would have seemed to be completely just the, the death knell of the house of Judah. But it would have gone a lot better for Judah in the end because God was going to accomplish his purposes. Likewise, the hardest thing for Second Temple Jewish Israel to do would be to put their trust in Jesus as their king. Ahaz ultimately did not trust in Yahweh, but in foreign policy. And the Second Temple Jewish Israelites crucified Jesus. And in fact, the idea that he is the king of the Jews on a Roman cross exemplified exactly what they thought of him and how they rejected him in his ways. The Emmanuel child embodied the promise that Yahweh was with Israel. Their deliverer proved to be their ravager, and they should have seen how Yahweh was faithful to his promises and was present. Jesus is Emmanuel, and the Jewish sects and Romans who conspired against him would lead to the ravaging of Jerusalem 40 years later, and they should have seen how God had vindicated Jesus' Lord, which is Jesus' prophetic message in Matthew 24. And Ahaz's fateful decision would be the doom of the first temple in the Davidic dynasty. The second temple, Israel's fateful decision, proved to be the doom of the second temple in the Israelite population within that land until the modern era. And God was with Israel in prosperity and judgment. God then took on flesh and dwelt among us, fulfilled the story of Israel, and was made both Lord and Christ, according to Acts 2 and verse 36. And in the resurrection and ascension, Jesus delivers us from sin and death and reigns as Lord of Lords, and king of kings, as Paul eloquently attests to in Colossians 1, 15 through 22. And so, Jesus is God with us. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins that allow us to be reconciled to God in Christ. And it helps us establish relational unity with God and with one another. The Spirit of God dwells in us individually and collectively, and we yearn to be redeemed in the body that we can dwell in Jesus' presence forevermore. And we see that in John 14. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and Revelation 21. And so Jesus is the ultimate Emmanuel of Isaiah's prophetic hope, the presence of God with his people, now and forever. And therefore, may we share in relational unity with God and Christ for eternity through Emmanuel, through Jesus, who is God with us. Let us go to God in prayer.
Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful that you have loved us and cared for us and for your provision for us, for all that you have done for us in Jesus, and that he is indeed the Emmanuel that you uh, promised to send, that he is uh, a God with us, and that we have seen uh, you in him, and that we can follow him, and that you have uh, allowed him to die and to be raised again, that we can have deliverance from sin and death and can uh, join with you in relational unity for eternity. We're thankful for the spirit through which you strengthen and sustain us, for the word that we've come to know you by, uh, for all the many blessings of life and health and prosperity that you've given us. We're mindful, Father, of the many who are still ill, and we pray that you would heal them. For those in great distress and pain, that you would comfort and strengthen them, as well as those who mourn. Uh, we pray for uh, you to preserve life where it is in danger, that your justice and righteousness would flow in our land and throughout the world, that uh, you'd provide for those who are in need, and that uh, you would be glorified uh, in your people in all things. We pray, Father, that we would be strengthened and sustained in Jesus, our Emmanuel, that we would uh, strive to follow after him, to trust in you and your ways in him, and to do what you have told us to do in him, and to be given the boldness and strength to bear witness to him in all that we say, feel, think, and do. And we earnestly look forward to his return that we can share in the resurrection of life with you for all eternity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. We're again so thankful that you have joined us, and if you have any questions, comments about the prophecy of the Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah's prophetic hope about Emmanuel, if you have any other issues that you'd like to talk about, uh, if there was any way you can be of service, please reach out to us in the comments. Subscribe to us, or you can find us at VenetureChristChrist.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.